Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Mean O'Lion Media and Sunseeker TV, in association with Carl Anthony Payne Entertainment, present Black Arm of the Law. Welcome to the Black Arm of the Law podcast. Uh, as you can guess, for those loyal listeners, this is a different voice you are hearing today. I am your guest host today. My name is Joe Claire, a.k.a. Joe Cleasy of BET and Deaf Comedy Jam fame and of the Joe Claire Morning Show here in Washington, D.C. Uh, my brother Carl Payne has asked me to fill in for him. He had some things that took precedent today and he could not be here with us, but we have a very very interesting guest. I am going to try to live up to the uh, reputation that the good call pain has put out here. So uh, I hope that you guys get something uh, enlightening and uh, educational and entertaining out of today's exchange. So welcome again to the Black Arm of the Law podcast. Today, we have a very special guest. Her name is Dr. Leslie Rogers, and she is a psychologist and the host of Mental Health Talk. It's a web-based talk show on YouTube. Let's all welcome Dr. Rogers. Rogers. Hey, Dr. Rogers. Hey, how are you? <laughs> I am good. I am good. Good to meet you and have you here with us today. You know, I understand that you know a lot about this podcast as you've had some colleagues on before, correct? Yes, yes. And I am so excited to be on today. Thank you. Well, you know, today's actually the best one they've had so far because <laughs> I, I know we are supposed to do the small talk and all of those things, but there's something that jumped out to me, uh, Dr. Rogers, um, that I that that intrigued me and really wanted me to really I really wanted to hear from you. And there is something that you do on Clubhouse and it's called Men Suffer Too. Yes. Yes. And Dr. Rogers, uh, as it relates to the black arm of the law and men and their feelings, because <laughs> I understand that we we sometimes I've heard that we sometimes hold on to our stuff. Could you tell us a little bit, expound a little bit about what men suffer to is and what that means for, you know, this discussion? Exactly. Um, so Men Suffer 2 is a room that I created under the Mental Health Talk Club on Clubhouse to allow men to have a voice um, because so often men do not use their voice, especially when it's around mental health. So the purpose of um, creating this room is because to kind of process through why men are always underrepresented when it comes to mental health. And so what we find is that there's a lot of reasons such as shame, guilt, feeling, uh, feelings of weaknesses, right? So there's many reasons why men don't share when it comes to mental health. And they're sometimes underreported, even when it becomes, uh, when it comes down to diagnoses, right? Research shows that um, sometimes because men um, uh, engage in externalizing behaviors, they really, they sometimes won't um, disclose depressive symptoms. So sometimes there can be clinical biases as well. We can make mistakes, right? Um, right. Sometimes we, you know, you can diagnose with men with irritability, uh, diagnoses that include irritability, PTSD, ADHD, stuff like that. Um, as opposed to those gender differences with women, women tend to report more internalizing symptoms such as depressive symptoms. 
right? So um, I thought that it would be a great idea to talk about, let men talk about why, why this is, why, why don't men re uh, report when it comes to mental health? And so I was a psychologist for the VA and I specialized in men groups, um, men trauma groups. And I found that when I had groups, no, nobody would be the first one to um, speak up and talk about mental health. But then as soon as one man spoke up and disclosed, guess what? It, it was like it gave permission to the other group members to speak up, right? The floodgates opened. <laughs> and it was yes. awesome. It was so awesome because um, <laughs> when men share mental health experiences and they start to validate each other, guess what? they normalize the discussions around mental health. And the more and more you normalize, the more and more they will talk. Now, you did 25 years of service for the Federal Bureau of Investigations. Um, so I want to backtrack a little bit. Before you got into the, the mental health space that you're in now, you were in the FBI. You were one of them alphabet people, as they call it in the, in the, in the, in the hood records. Yes. Jeezy and them called y'all called the alphabet people. How did you get to the FBI? If, if I can keep it 100%, brothers and sisters, how, like how she found herself in the FBI? You know, it's interesting that you said that brothers and sisters, because I don't think that we often think about we have like opportunities to work for agencies such as um, the FBI and CIA and other agencies. But we do. So I grew up in um, I grew up in Washington, D.C. In, okay. in a middle class neighborhood. I went to H.D. Woodson Senior High School. That is the good. uh <laughs> You was on the Northeast side. Right, Northeast, okay. So I went to H.D. Woodson um, Senior High School, um, grew up in a middle-class family. But, you know, um, I didn't know that I had an opportunity to go to college. Uh, we weren't, uh, we didn't have much money. My family didn't have money. And I thought that in order for you to go to college, because in order for you to work at the FBI and do certain things, you have to have a college degree. Um, I thought, grew up thinking that because we didn't have money, I couldn't go to college. My first exposure was working at a um what is it called? A technical institute where I went to school there. Okay. And that was my first exposure to, wow, maybe I can go to college, right? I end up um, getting a job at the FBI. But believe it or not, I was working at IRS and um, Securities and Exchange Commission right after high school. Time out, time out, time out. So you, you have all the alphabets, the IRS, the SEC, the <laughs> The FBI, you know, coming from Washington, D.C., I think that, you know, that that opens the door for, you know, I'm from the area as well. And and we have a we have a lot of exposure mm -hmm. just by default to these types of organizations. By default, a lot of people around the country just don't know that, you know, you can come out of high school and get into the federal government right off of the break. So you you took that up and decided to run with it, huh? Yeah. I, let me tell you, this little girl from the hood, I had a mission. And I knew that I wanted to become something. And it was that mission that kept me grounded. And because there was a lot of times that I wanted to give up and not, you know, go all the way through. So I got hired at the FBI as a secretary. Actually, no, I was hired as a fingerprint examiner. <laughs> and then I worked my way up to the secretary. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> when did you get the fingerprinting experience to be able to work at the... I can understand if you said you worked for the local police department in the fingerprint, but you went to the Federal Bureau of Investigations for fingerprint. That's the big leagues as far as fingerprinting is concerned. No, we were working on a beltway. It was a bunch of us. You know how you, it, it, trust me, it looked like a beltway where everyone's sitting and working on fingerprints. But, you know, I did that for a few years and then I was promoted to a secretary. 
And then I was promoted to investigations. I was a single parent and I went to school a little bit. I went to Bowie State University. It was Shout out to the good Bowie State <laughs> University. I reside in Bowie, Maryland. Uh-huh. It, I love it. Yeah, it wasn't until um, I started working at the FBI, though, that I started, um, that I decided to go back to school and finish my degree. Um, you know, I had mentors at the FBI that got that started. So I finished my undergraduate degree and was like, what the hell? I might as well get my master's degree. And it was, you know, on from there. What drove you to to sort of study psychology, though? The understanding of people and understanding of behaviors, especially when you talk about, you know, a lot of us, especially in African-American communities, grow up in, in traumatic families, like traumatic histories and being able to understand, you know, um, and process through all of those emotions that come along with that. Right. Right. Like, me, too. I'm a product of trauma, which, you know, ooh, that's my first time saying that aloud. But, you know, me too, I am the process of trauma. So, you know, to be able to understand those emotions and the attitudes that we develop from trauma, the um, the thoughts that we develop from trauma, right, to be able to understand it. And when I was at the FBI, I became the um, employee assistance coordinator for the counterterrorism division, which really threw me into, wow, I need to become a psychologist because there I was doing short-term counseling and referral um, services for um, employees at the FBI, which is a very rewarding experience. It gave me really um, got my feet, feet wet without being a psychologist, right? Got my feet wet in that field. Well, I just wanted to see what drove you because I did receive my degree in psychology from Morgan State University. Ooh. I have to shout out my bears. <laughs> um, which, which, let me back up to your time at the FBI because we're talking about uh, blacks in law enforcement and you know, discrimination permeates our society, whether you're I don't care where you work. We always see it. We always feel it. Did you see that and feel that when you were working at the FBI? Um, Not as much, but absolutely. I think that in any organization or like you said, you know, I, I think that there's going to be discrimination and I'm not really normalizing it, but it's the truth. You're, you're going to see it. Um, you know, I remember working um, in my first job. As an investigator, I remember, let me tell you, sometimes I'm naive to it. I don't see it unless it's pointed out to me. I remember Mm -hmm. um, as an investigator, I was a single mother and uh, our hours were all over the place. So it was interfering with my parenting with my son. And um, I remember having to take um, some time off because I couldn't do, you know, I couldn't just work. Every week our shift was changing. One week, seven to three, next week, three to 10, the week after, you know, it was like that constantly. So I remember asking to take time off and I remember this specific person. Oh, my goodness. This specific person, you know, he would um, like get on me about being a single parent. Like it just wasn't right. Right. And um, I remember he allowed me to take some time off, but he sent me directly to the mailroom. So he sent me to the mailroom to, to, to sort mail. So I remember back then, if I can remember, I remember saying to myself, wow, is he discriminating against me? Or what? And I really didn't know. But then I found that um, there were white colleagues that were coming through the system, also asking for time off. He was sending them to other squads. And then he sent three of us. He sent three black women to the mailroom. Everybody else went to. And that's when I really knew. Um, I ended up complaining. Mm-hmm. I did. I ended up complaining because it was discrimination. I actually ended up um, uh, initiating an EEO complaint, equal um, equal employment opportunity. Um, mm-hmm. And let me tell you, even the EEO um, investigator that was a white male said that it was discrimination. 
he couldn't believe it. The guy ended up uh, retiring. But, um, you know, that saying, uh, things happen for a reason, a person in upper management became his boss and ended up removing me from that situation. And that was like the best decision that he did because um, I ended up ended up being an intelligence analyst over at headquarters, which was the best experience ever. Um, you're no longer there, but do you think that it has it changed? Has that culture changed in the FBI from, you know, from from where you sit? Do you think that there are people there who are still catching the discrimination or, you know, did you guys get to set a precedent and change some things there while you were there? You know, I think that um, I really can't answer that question because, again, we're talking about institutionalized uh, discrimination, right? Or organizational discrimination. Is it potentially there? Of course. I think it's everywhere, right? I think that um, a lot of us get into these jobs, into these roles, and we're afraid to speak up, though, because we're afraid that we're going to lose our jobs or we're going to get blackballed, right? And which mm-hmm. is a possibility, right? Um, with me back then, I was pretty vocal. <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> you know, with me back then, I was like, hell no, uh-uh, you're not going to do this to me. But, you know, I was on a mission. I was on a mission to succeed. So, you know, I knew what I could do and what I could not do. And one thing I was not going to do is allow somebody to say, you're not going to be successful. Right. So, but you, again, you have folks that are like me, you know, that are afraid to speak up and because they don't want to be, you know, this is our career, you know, you don't want to interfere with that success because it's hard, you know, as an African-American woman and as men, you know, sometimes hard to break into that system. It's hard. It's difficult. And sometimes we have to work harder. Right. But, um, you know, so we have to pick and choose our battles, as you will. Well, yesterday it's 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 uh, it's interesting. I put out something on my social media after an incident of what we believed was police brutality. And the police chief of Washington, D.C. agreed and let three officers go uh, just recently. And I put a post out asking for black people in law enforcement, black police officers to speak out. And the response that I got was just what you just said. It's it's 2021 and the brothers and sisters were like, Joe, I, we, we feel what you're saying, but we are ostracized. We are, um, you know, sidelined, uh, marginalized, discriminated against within the law enforcement community. And then we have the double, uh, the double, you know, WAP of getting hit once we go back to our community and we are in law enforcement, you know, the community doesn't accept us readily either. So, you know, I, I kind of get why it, where you're coming from and I'm glad that we're having this conversation today. Yeah. It's just difficult to kind of speak up, especially when you're in the community, um, you know, yeah. against, you know, the norm to go against because it, it, potentially you can be ostracized. Potentially you can be blackballed is the word because that's what happens. That's reality. So yeah, you know, I had thought about bringing police officers onto mental health talk, which we'll talk about later. And I was told the same thing, Leslie, you're not going to get anybody that's on the force. You're going to have to go for a retired cop, right? To come on and talk about certain things. And I understand. That, I understand. That's disheartening. Yeah. From, from, a, from me sitting here, uh, you know, at the age that I am and watching this country do what it's done over this last 50 years of my life. That is very disheartening to hear that even in this day and time, the people who we count on the most, the people who put their lives on the line for our uh, communities and for our safety day in and day out, whether they are the local police officer or they're an FBI agent, can't speak out about, you know, something as basic as, you know, being treated as an equal when you go to work. 
It's very disheartening. Do you see that it tends to play on people's mental health and have, you know, have, uh, you know, a bad effect on them? Of course, because it silences your voice. You know, it takes away your power and control to speak freely and openly, you know, about your rights. Um, Yeah. So I can see that um, the possibility of it impacting mental health significantly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What do you see uh, law enforcement commonly uh, experiencing or suffering from, you know, the ones that you do get to talk to you, the ones that you do get to open up, even if they're retired? What is like the most common thing that you see that has happened to them or that they suffer from? Regarding mental health? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So listen, I did a um a paper, a master's thesis, right, on law enforcement suicides, right? And um, the thesis included um, FBI, CIA, and military and uh, local police departments, right? And mm-hmm. the common theme across the board was um, substance use, like alcoholism. Alcoholism was the common. Um, and, you know, suicides. Suicides were really high extremely off the roof, especially within, um, I call them, I'll call them closed systems and open systems, right? Especially in like um, state and local law enforcement agencies, like just police departments, right? Suicides were high. <laughs> and, you know, the FBI, there were many suicides there. In fact, when I was writing my thesis, several suicides had happened at the time that I was writing the thesis. But really? when I was getting ready to publish the, the thesis, the um, FBI put a stop to it. The day before, I was getting ready to publish my thesis in order to graduate. They um, stopped it. They did not want it. What do you mean they stopped it? They didn't want it to be public. So I had to go through and um, just reword it and say, as there there are suicides, successful suicides within the FBI, but I had to kind of modify that. But now that I look back on it, I mean, if you admit to having successful suicides in your organization, what is that saying to your organization, right? And these organizations are uh, reactive. They're not proactive. So what that means is they act when things happen. And I'm going to repeat that. They act when things happen. So, for instance, if you have, you know, several suicides in your organization, then you put in place um, components such as um, suicide awareness and other things to kind of um, intervene, so put in interventions once things happen. So now we've come a long way now. That was, you know, I graduated from my master's degree, I think, in uh, 2005, I think. Okay. So, you know, there are things in place now that, you know, we're being, being a little bit proactive, meaning um, you have uh, training such as suicide awareness, right? You have employee assistance and you have other things in place to kind of navigate through that. But um, again, alcoholism is high in law enforcement, um, depression, anxiety, PTSD, and stuff like that. Does that make people not, you know, I guess new recruits don't have any 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 inkling into what they're really getting into um, to know that, you know, they may need to get into these services early or does the do these organizations say, hey, look here, when you're coming in as a new recruit, here is the mental health piece that we need you all to know. Does that yeah. happen or not? So, yes, let me take that back. Yes, because you have an orientation, you have a new employee orientation where every division comes together, including EEO and EAP, Employee Assistance Program and Equal um, Employment Opportunity. They come and speak to new recruits as well. So, yes, they do. Um, but I don't think, you know, listen, when you're a new a new employee, you're not thinking about that stuff right there. It's not until you actually get into the system and start working and start experiencing stressors, you know, that you're you're then say, saying, oh, we have an EAP component here. 
we have an um, an EAP is for mental health. So we have an EAP component here. But again, employee assistance programs are for short-term counseling and referral. So if there's any crises, then you're referred out. Now, talking about mental health as far as disclosures, you know, um, when you have clearances, you have to be really careful about disclosing certain information. And that's why, especially agents and other law enforcement um, persons are resistant to share because, you know, the idea is to get help when you need it. But when you're talking about substance use like alcoholism, right, the goal is to make sure um, safety comes first. So if you disclose alcoholism, so disclose drug use or disclose um, other um, mental health issues, there are potential consequences. That's why people don't, especially if you carry a weapon, you have to, you know, there are potential consequences. You know, you disclose that, oh, um, I have uh, issues such as PTSD or other things, um, you know, then they, uh, these agencies, these organizations then have to assess what the risks are. Do you think it's it's more prevalent than the agencies know or are the agencies fully aware of what, you know, an agent will probably go through and they, they just kind of chalk it up as, you know, part of the job and mm-hmm. part of the collateral damage? Yeah, no, I think that there's statistics, right? Um, every time a person commits a suicide, and if they're not, there is. I know at the FBI, we kept statistics for suicides, um, for, um, you know, things like um, mental health crises. If they report and if they go to EAP, then again, that's reporting. There are statistics there. Um, it's when, uh, you know, if people don't report or don't disclose um, crises or, you know, crises, then how could they know? Man, I, it, it's... It's interesting to me to all anytime I get to talk to someone in law enforcement, Dr. Rogers, um, and anyone who's been there, um, because it's there's there's a it seems to me like a double edged sword. Um, you have to come back and and you said you from Northeast. For any of the listeners from around the country, Northeast is you know what I'm saying when I say Northeast. Uh-huh. You know, it's 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 it, it has its great parts and then it has its hood parts. Mm-hmm. And you have to come back, and I'm and I'm sure there are people in the community who applaud you for going into the FBI and doing what you had to do, and taking care of your son, and you know, furthering your career and being a professional woman. But I'm sure that at the, at the same time, there are a lot of people who say, "Man, you over there working for the feds? You are, you know, how could you work for the feds? How do you do this? How did you cope?" Again, you know, I have to say, working for the FBI was really rewarding for me. I think it helped me and my maturity. It helped me mature a lot. Um, and it helped me develop into the person that I am today. Um, yes, there's cons and there's pros as well. I never had anyone to say to me, Leslie, you shouldn't. You shouldn't go work for the FBI. Or why are you working for the FBI? People were proud of me. Proud. Wow, Leslie works for the FBI, right? So I had that right. sort of proudness. Um, but again... They just hide the weed when you come around. <laughs> right. So... Um, <laughs> Right. So, um, yeah. So, you know, it was a rewarding experience. And I was able with me, I was able to navigate through the system. Let me tell you, the FBI paid for my undergraduate degree, paid for my master's degree and was getting ready to pay for my doctorate degree until I wrote out. Right. So, um, you know, I was able to navigate through that and how I cope again is because I think because of where I came from, because of not having because of not having money or not having, you know, that um, financial stability when growing up, it made me more um, motivated. It was like it was something that I had to do. I, success was in my just blood. I had to because I wanted to raise my 
son in a certain way as well, right? Being a single parent, I wanted to model for him and raise him in a way where he didn't have to struggle like I did so that he could have opportunities such as college. So now we're first and second generation college degree people because I'm the only person, my son and my dad, you know, he went up to um, master's degree. So we're like first, second and third generation college students. What do you think in your estimation, and this is a bit off of topic, but in your estimation, what do you think is it going to take to make more brothers feel that same way? Acknowledging them, letting them know that we're here. We hear you. Right. Allowing them a voice. Um, again, it's something for a black man to have their voice taken away. And I'll repeat that. It's something for a black man to have their voice taken away. When you have your voice taken away, um, you know, it can potentially leave in low self-confidence, low self-esteem. Right. And other um, other emotions, too. So giving that man a voice, you know, giving him a voice and letting him know, building him up to know you got this. You got this. Do you think that your your work in mental health awareness, you know, is part of that? that change or part of that, that thing that we need. I, I mean, like you said, people were really proud of you and pr- and happy for you. I don't think that, you know, they don't express as much that, that same type of pride when a brother does it. Yeah. It, if you understand, it's, it's really nuanced, but you know, it gets a little funky when we say, you know, dude work for the, he worked for the FBI. Oh, I don't want nothing to do with him. Mm-hmm. Keep him away from us. Well, I mean, I'm in hip hop. I was like, nah, nah, nah. Put the weed away. Here comes such and such. But if we see Leslie, oh, Leslie, what's up? How you been? Everything good? How's the FBI? Yeah. But I think it, you know, I, I hear what you're saying. Absolutely. My my mission is to boost men up, give them a voice. And it starts with letting them know that you have a voice to um speak mental health too, right? You have a voice to speak about mental health too. Don't be afraid, right? Let's normalize this for men. Men suffer too, my slogan, right? Men suffer too, right? Um, You know, we know you suffer. So let's talk about it. You know, use each other as a catalyst to kind of bounce off each other, right? To motivate each other, to help each other, right? As men. Um, And that's what I do in Clubhouse. But listen, um, that fear factor, trying to put aside that fear factor, not being afraid, because I I believe a lot of black males, um, you know, just think about creating worldviews. If my worldview tells me that I'm a black female, um, no one's going to give me opportunity, then guess what? I'm not going to take that opportunity because I don't want to be let. So fear of rejection, I don't want to be let down. Right. So if I'm I'm fearful of rejection, then most likely I'm not going to be assertive and try Right. So, um, you know, rejection is a part of life. You're going to hear no, but knowing that it's okay to hear no, it's okay. But building yourself up and know that although I got this no and this no and this no, you know, a yes is going to come and I'm going to keep trying until I get that yes. And um, so absolutely, I think that um, we should try and build men up to give them that boost in self-esteem, especially black males, a boost in self-esteem, a boost in self-confidence and a boost in self-love toward loving themselves enough to jump out there and say, I am worth whatever the world has to offer me. I'm worth it. Have you seen that happen in your, with your son? Absolutely. My son, um, you know, he um, went to college. Well, listen, as a parent, he didn't have any other choice, any other choice, 
<laughs> I mean, you know, let me tell you, and because I was a single parent, let me tell you guys, and I'm sure some of you guys can resonate on this. As a single parent, some of my goals were pushed on him, right? Some of my experiences, negative experiences as a child were pushed on him. So I was like, listen, dude, you got to go to go to college, you know? No, you, you, no, there's no, you know, when he was in high school, which I encourage this, when he was in the high school, listen, you can um, choose whatever sport you want. You can choose whatever club you want, but you have to choose three. You have to be involved in three. I didn't care what he chose to be involved in, but he had to do something because activities are important for growth and development for these children, right? Um, so you yeah. can have to choose three, right? So he chose three. He chose track, swimming, and um, soccer, so, um, and then college, listen, what college do you want to go? I encourage him to go out of state because I mean, so that he can, um, enrich his, uh, you know, his experiences. You don't want to be stuck here. I was stuck here my whole life. So I didn't know what it was like to go away. Now he has that experience. You know, he went to, um, university of Tampa. Then he could choose, um, if I want to stay in Tampa or if I want to go somewhere else, I can go wherever I want. I don't have to stay in Maryland. Right. Like me, I was yeah. stuck here. So he had to, I, I encouraged him to go out of state. So he went to the University of Tampa. I didn't want him to stay here. So the things that we do when we go through things based on our experiences, sometimes we um, push those things on our kids um, to have them, you know, thrive. And that's what I did. Um, was I perfect? Absolutely not. Was I perfect? No, by no means I was perfect. But um I did the job as a mother where I'm proud of my son today. So, And I'm sure if we asked him, he would say you were perfect in every single way, except for those couple of times you had to pull that belt out. But other than that, <laughs> I want to I want to talk about your your work, your podcast, your um, the, the show that you do on YouTube, as well as the show that you do on Clubhouse. Yeah, the Clubhouse that work. Um, Leslie seems Dr. Rogers seems to be uh gaining more ground and where we are headed for the future. Big thing was be about becoming a professional and maintaining your professional life and having your five year plan and, and having that uh laid out and, and pursuing that. It seems to me now that in, in addition to your five year plan, um, the world is saying make sure that you have a clear cut grasp on where you lie with your mental health. Please tell everybody, one, where they can find you, and two, what's the big why, why you do it and what you want to happen for anyone who needs help, anyone who tunes in, or, or and for the Black community. Absolutely. I'll start with the why. So why I do this? Because I don't think we talk enough about mental health, and we haven't really seen a boost in it until COVID. When COVID happened, now everybody, you know, is trying to get out there and talk about mental health, right? Um, we didn't realize how social we were until we were locked in and couldn't socialize. Mm. We didn't realize that until we were told you need to stay in the house, right? And then a lot of things, you know, depression, um, anxiety, a lot of anxiety, you know, around COVID. So, you know, to be able to normalize mental health experiences by dispelling myths, there's a lot of myths out there. And when I talk about myths, you know, my show, Mental Health Talk with Dr. Leslie Rogers is on Thursdays at 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We're going to talk about myths, right? I don't have a guest tomorrow, so we're going to, I'm going to talk, we're going to talk about myths and dispelling myths, such as myths thinking mental health is the same as mental illness, because it's not, right? Myths such as, um, uh, so on Facebook, I have a Facebook group called Mental Health Talk with Dr. Leslie Rogers, and they're talking about myths. And um, 
you know, one person said um, a myth is that um, she was told when she was a child, pray it away. If she was suffering, mm. pray it away and God will take it away. Right. Myths. So dispelling myths. So that's the why to get people to talk about mental health more and to destigmatize mental health, even in black communities, destigmatize it. Just because you um, suffer with a mental illness doesn't mean you're crazy. Right. They throw down that word crazy too loosely. So guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to get the discussions going. I've already gotten the discussions going and a lot of people are talking about it. How you can find me. My website is uh, mentalhealthtalk.live. Mentalhealthtalk.live. You can read all about me. Um, I have uh, another uh, project that I'm working on called Vet Speak. Again, giving veterans a voice and transitioning veterans into the communities when they come back from war zone areas. Quick question. Do you see a lot of parallels between veterans and law enforcement? Again, you know, is that in that regard? Yeah. in that mentality that, again, what do I share? You know, with veterans, you're in war war zone areas. You can't say, oh, I feel depressed. Right. You got to maintain stability, be stable so that you can get the job done. Right. So it's a lot of hush hush. You don't really talk about mental health um, when you're, you know, in war. Um, The same and and fear of consequences, those negative consequences. So when you talk about a parallel, that's it. You know, uh, in fear that if I disclose emotional um, experiences, what type of consequences am I going to receive? Am I going to be ostracized or what's going to happen? Am I going to be seen as weak? Even in families, you know, and we're talking about blacks in black families as a male in a black family. um, What are your thoughts about disclosing or engaging in therapy, engaging in therapeutic um, help, right? Is that going to make me feel weak? I've had people ask me, well, Dr. Rogers, how am I going to take care of my family if I'm depressed? How am I going to take care of my family if I'm so anxious from PTSD? You know, am I weak as a male? How does that reconstruct your definition of being a male, right? How? Right. Right. So, um, yeah. So contact me, um, mentalhealthtalk.live. I'm on Facebook, Instagram. We're getting to the 40 minute mark, but but I want to go a bit off topic for a second because something happened recently. It was a high profile mental health issue when Simone Biles said, look at here. She was at the Olympics. She's at the place she's worked her entire life to get to. And of course, she's already a champion and she had been here before. However, you know, this is this is it. And Simone Biles said, look, man, I I, I'm, I, I can't do this. I'm not in the right headspace to do this. And I saw two things emerge. I saw a lot of people applaud her for doing that. But on my own Instagram, I, I saw a brother say, and this was a black man say, well, how do you become champion? How do you become the real champion if you are going to bow out because you feel like you're not mentally prepared? Mm-hmm. What message is that sending to young girls? And what message is that sending to the country? And I thought that was a lot of pressure to put on this young lady's shoulders. What are your thoughts? Hey, listen, societal pressure, societal pressure as to what does society tell me that I, I'm supposed to act? How am I supposed to behave based on societal pressure, right? And that's exactly what it is. Um, just because you're a celebrity, let me tell you, this girl is the best. The best. Best. That comes best. That comes with a lot of pressure because now, now you got to conform to what society says that you have to be as being the best. What's the other girl named Naomi Osaka? 
Osaka. Yes, the pressure, the pressure, you know, that's on you. And, um, you know, I've heard celebrities talk from interviews saying that, listen, I wear a mask every day. When I go home, I take that mask off. And that's when I fall apart. You can't fall apart in public, right? So absolutely, it, what it tells our young people is, again, it silences them. You know, you can't be the best without having challenges, without having emotional challenges. Hey, aren't we... Everybody has emotional challenges. So why can't Simone or Naomi Osaka have emotional challenges too? We should support them. And again, as being uh, reactive, we should be more proactive in putting in place um, programs to support these folks when they are in these, uh, when they're playing tennis or when they're playing basketball or when they're playing uh, other stuff. There should be things in place, already in place to support them if they're having emotional challenges so that it normalizes discussions so that we can kind of intervene with suicides, intervene with depression, intervene with anxiety. Where are these programs? We know it's now, because let me tell you, one, it only takes one person to stand up and that was Naomi Osaka. And guess what? Mm -hmm. Simone and guess what? Others are going to stand up to. So where are the programs? We need programs in place to be ready for them so that we can normalize it and say, it's okay. I can't wait till some of these rappers do it. I need to see some of these rappers go ahead and talk about this depression and it is and not and not do it with that lean as they call it. I need to see these rappers start to do that. So hopefully, um, you know, with these two high profile people and the support that they that they're getting from other high profile people, maybe we will start to normalize. Yeah. Look, man, I'm just I'm not okay. Yeah. I would, I would, I would, Dr. Rogers, I would really, I, first of all, I applaud the work that you're doing. And I would really love to be able to see that the, the legacy of that work is that my children who are still very young, uh, grow up in a world knowing to that it's okay to say, look, I ain't good right now. I'm not okay. I need help. I need, um, you know, yeah. cause I've seen what not asking for help has done to too many of us. Yeah, model for them. Model. If you model for them and it'll normalize their behaviors too. So disclose, I don't know if you can tell. Disclose, I don't know if you can tell. Daddy, oh, I asked for help. Yeah, no, yeah. Tell your children, talk to them about how you feel. Talk to them how you feel about COVID. Talk to them about, wow, I'm pretty anxious, you know, about COVID. I, I you know, I'm nervous, I'm anxious, or whatever it is you're feeling. You know, have that discussion as a family so that you can normalize it so they can come to you and say, Dad, wow, I was at school today and I got kind of nervous. My heart started beating really fast. Right. Encourage that discussion. I'm modeling. I know that's right. Well, I I, I will try that. Um, you know, I, I like I was just joking, saying you know they know I ask for help, but I don't to that extent, and I do not, you know, uh, as a man, readily say, hey, I was I was scared too, or I was frightened as well, and and so thank you for that tip. I, I'll make sure that I add that to my own life. Anybody who's listening, she just gave you a beautiful nugget right there to use. Once again, tell everybody where they can find you. Again, my name is Dr. Leslie Rogers. I'm a psychologist and host of Mental Health Talk. You can find me at uh, www.mentalhealthtalk.live. Um, that's the website. You can um, subscribe to the show and you could subscribe to the newsletter and you can also join. I'm all over Facebook, guys. So um, my Facebook group, we're having a great discussion right now on myths around mental health. And it's very important because, as you know, they can guide our um got our resistances toward uh, disclosures. So look me up, guys. I would love to hear from you.
There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Dr. Leslie Rogers here on the Black Arm of the Law. That was a uh, thank you so much for taking the time out to talk to us today and, and and give us those nuggets and those gems. And and I hope each of you got some kind of insight out of this. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, Leslie Rogers, you broke down a wall or two for some people. You don't have to admit it if you're listening now. You don't have to admit it to anyone but yourself. You know because you know you just you just gave me one. And I'm sure you gave someone else one who's listening. I'm going to go upstairs right now and tell my kids how scared I was today when the lightning started coming, the thunderstorms came. I was out there. I was out there in my little Honda Accord. Now I used to have a big old truck. I was driving my Honda. I was. I was. My heart started palpitating. <laughs> I'm going to go share that with my son before he goes to bed tonight. Hey, listen, everybody, this is the Black Arm of the Law. I am your guest host, Joe Claire. Uh, Carl Payne will be back soon. I thank you so much for tuning in and supporting us. Please subscribe and continue to listen to us wherever you digest your podcast. Thank you so very much, and we'll talk to you really, really soon. Awesome. Thank you, Leslie. Thank you for having me as a guest. Black Arm of the Law is hosted by Carl Payne. Produced by Ken Johnson, Bart Phillips, and Carl Payne. Consulting producers, FBI Special Agent Retired Don Taylor and FBI Special Agent Retired George Graves. Edited by Rick Chill. Theme music by Jeff Red, courtesy of Soul Real Records. Executive producers, Ken Johnson and Bart Phillips. Find Black Arm of the Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Black Arm of the Law is a mean old lion media production. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.